When Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he learned the power and the love of God. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we learn lessons from the Exodus and God's great rescue. We are in episode 24 of our study, uh, which is God's great rescue, the Exodus. And uh, we, man, we started this a long time before this vacation, you know, before the vacation. Uh, but we we um, we got all the way to chapter 12. And the, where we got to was that the 10 plagues happened and the Israelites were allowed to leave Egypt. And so they left Egypt. Uh, and at the end of chapter 12 or kind of the middle of chapter 12, uh, well, I guess I could read it for you. Uh, it's actually at the bottom of the page, uh, beginning of verse 40. Now, the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil in honor, to honor the Lord for the generations to come. So uh, basically, that's kind of where we left it off right before the vacation um, and uh, or the last episode, that the length of time the Israelites was 430 years and that the Lord kept vigil that night as all the Israelites left Egypt. Uh, they had been there for 430 years. Remember, they got there because of Joseph. Joseph went into slavery in Egypt, became Pharaoh's right-hand person, uh, brought his brothers and sister, brothers and sisters and father up to, uh, up to Egypt. Uh, and then over a period of time, over a period of 430 years, uh, the Pharaohs took the Israelites, and instead of being a preferred status because they were Pharaoh's right-hand man, either because they maybe they got too numerous, uh, maybe they stopped being kind, stopped following God's laws, uh, who, who knows what happened. But over a period of 40, 430 years, they went from being kind of top dog to being slaves. And that just gets to show you that, you know, nobody ever stays Nobody ever stays in the top position forever, right? Um, what happens, I, I'm sure I've talked about this before, but almost every society, uh, you know, it starts out kind of on an equal footing, uh, or, you know, or, or maybe some people are in charge and some people aren't in charge, but the people that aren't in charge over time, they get upset, they revolt, they do whatever they can, and they create, you know, they distribute the balances of power and wealth and this happens most typically, you know, modern society happens over revolutions or a dictator is overthrown uh, or another a country comes and invades. Maybe it's the United States that goes in and tries to create order, you know, kind of upset the order in a different country. I don't know, but it never stays constant. Um, just one of those things about about everything in every situation, every culture, that nothing ever stays constant. It's always it's always going to change at some point. If you are the world leader like the USA is today, I would think we're probably the sole superpower. Um, we won't stay. I mean, for one thing, uh, China is uh, probably twice as big, over two times as big as the United States, maybe three times as big as the United States. Uh, it could even be more than that. Uh, what is the population in China? I thought it was a billion, so maybe three times as big as the United States. And once they get, you know, the technology, once their infrastructure is built out to be equivalent to the United States, they're going to be they're going to have a potential for three times as much wealth 
as the United States. And so that's a very scary thing for China to come on the rise and do that. But I think that's probably going to happen in the future. Uh, and so we have to prepare for that. I'm not prepare. I mean, just understand that the world's never going to stay static. We're, no country, you know, no empire. The, the uh, English Empire, the British Empire was, you know, didn't is no longer the British Empire. They founded, you know, they came and established the United States, but we're no longer part of the British Empire. So everything changes. Be interesting to see. I wish I could come back in 500 years and see what the distribution of power and wealth in the world is, like where it will be 500 years from now. Because 300 years ago, it was definitely the British Empire. And that was only 300 years. So in 500 years, you have no, I mean, probably be two or three empires that will come and go in the next 500 years. I don't know. But it took 430 years from uh, the Israelites to go from the top position down to the bottom position where they're slaves. All right. So um, let's see. I think we'll go ahead and because the next section is really interesting, fascinating, um, because then immediately after that, we go into verse 43 of Exodus 12, where it says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, these are the regulations for the Passover meal. No foreigner may eat it. Any slave you have brought may eat it after you have circumcised him. But a temporary resident or a hard worker may not eat it. It must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside of the house. Do not break any of the bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. A foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. And then he may take part like the one born in the land, but no one uncircumcised male may eat it. Now, if you'll remember, circumcision was the covenantal uh, act that joined together the people of Israel with God. God told Abraham to circumcise himself and to circumcise the, the children, the males, uh, for his whole entire uh, progeny. And so Abraham does that. He's circumcised, and the, and the circumcision is the the act that shows that you're in this um, covenantal relationship with God. It was the circumcision. And so God brought out the people who were in a covenantal relationship out of slavery into Egypt, and he's going to take them to the promised land. But as doing that, he says to them, listen, now you're going to celebrate the Passover, the Passover meal uh, in future years, but no foreigner may eat it. And any slave that you brought may eat it. Now, that's interesting that slaves can eat it because they're part of the community. They're, uh, it's all part of what I would call authority. Like, who has authority? If you've got a slave, you've got authority over that person. And so you are, that slave uh, is entered into this covenantal relationship with God, a part of the community, because uh, you have authority over that slave. The children have a covenantal relationship because they are in uh, in the community. The community is in a covenantal relationship with God because they circumcise all the males. So every, everybody, you know, is part of that community is circumcised. But a foreigner, they're not circumcised and they're not part of the community, so they can't eat this Passover meal. Um, but a temporary, uh, no foreigner may eat it. A slave can, but a temporary resident or a hired worker may not eat it. So hired workers, they're seeing as temporary. They're not like permanently in the community. Temporary residents, not permanently. Foreigners, not permanently in the community. The only people that can eat part of this Passover meal are the people that are permanently in 
the you know this covenantal relationship uh, in the community of Israel. Uh, and then he gives some regulations about how it's supposed to be. It must be eaten inside the house, the Passover meal. None of the meat is taken outside of the house. Don't break any of the bones of the lambs that you're eating that meat. And the whole community of Israel must celebrate it. So this is a community-wide celebration of Passover. It isn't just an individual celebration. It's like the whole community is in a covenantal relationship with God. They retain that covenantal relationship with God because they all circumcise their males and they all move together as a community. It's it's a whole different ball of wax than what we have today. Today, we are very much individualistic and we see ourselves more as individuals than we see ourselves as part of a community. But, but human beings were created to be a part of community. We don't function very well unless we're part of a community. We have our family and that's you know part of our community, but we need a broader community from which to be a part of. And we're not complete and we don't feel complete unless we are part of a community. So for the Christian church, we feel part of the community of the Christian church, right? We've been brought into that relationship with God through our baptism. And so now we're part of the whole entire Christian church on earth. That's the community that we belong to. And then it's the local congregation. We can also belong to that too. Um, if you don't have that, like if you don't have that, that community sense that we're part of something bigger than our family, bigger than ourselves, you lose sight of your identity. Uh, there's something missing. And so a lot of people who are not part of the Christian community try to find other organizations that they can be a part of to get that sense of community. And so it might be a political party, right? They get that sense of community from that. They might get sense of community from their local community, right? They're a like here in Vail, you might get a sense of identity that I'm part of all of Vail. Um, and there's, you know, even today, there's lots of apps and things that try to help us create that community. Um, we are we are just a we are just a people that were meant to be in community. Look at uh, look at God. He exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He exists in community uh, because we crave relationship. We crave for deeper meaning. We crave for that joy of being part of something bigger than ourselves. I, um, I, I don't denigrate or say anything bad about people that, um, you know, they find their self of, of identity, you know, as far as a social organization or a, or a uh, you know, political party or, you know, some community organization or something like that. But the, the, the downside, I think you'd be very, very cautious about if that's your identity, is that at some point they will fail you. At some point, every, you know, the Republican Party, Democrat Party, whatever, all these different political parties, they're going to do stupid things and they're going to do things that are going to really upset you. Um, and that, you know, they're going to do sinful things or not, you know, they don't always have your best interest in mind. Even a community organization doesn't have your best interest in mind. So when you identify, when your community, your primary community is the Christian church on earth that has been forgiven in Jesus, uh, that really truly is a great community to be a part of because it will never fail you. I mean, it, it may fail here temporarily on earth, but ultimately that community is redeemed and will live with Jesus forever. So there's some sense of, uh, of completion and redemption in that one community. All the other communities of the earth are going to fail, but the, but the Christian church throughout time and on this earth that never fails. Um, 
I don't remember I got into that. But anyway, so because we, we all crave community, every single one of us crave community. Uh, and I wonder if this has any application to, to the kingdom of God. Um, the, our entrance in the kingdom of God isn't circumcision. Our entrance into the kingdom of God is baptism. And uh, so this Passover meal, um, the, the, the laws or the, the kind of the commands from God associated with this Passover meal uh, could apply to, to the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus never really said inscription who can or cannot take Holy Communion. Uh, he says people should examine themselves. Um, but the only people who realistically would want to take commun- you know, Holy Communion are those people that are in the kingdom. And your entrance into the kingdom of God is baptism. So, and we saw this in the Didache. We did a study on the Didache uh, in another episode, in another broadcast, podcast. And in the Didache, it says the only people that should take Holy Communion or they can take Holy Communion is those people who have been baptized or part of the kingdom of God. So you can kind of see how that kind of fits in with this. Um, the foreigners and, uh, and people who are temporary residents or hired residents may not take uh, this, this Passover meal. But a foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males of his household circumcised, and then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat it. So imagine you're a foreigner in Israel, and you see this really incredibly tight-knit community, and you want to become part of that community. You want to be able to, to celebrate the Passover with that community. In order to do that, no matter your age and no matter what, you know, today we would have, you know, you'd have to put me under to circumcise me. I'm sorry. You'd have to, uh, that would not, that would have to be, you know, something. I, I can't even imagine with the crude instruments they had back at this time, what a circumcision would have looked like, but they did it. And uh, not only did they do it, but all the males of the household did it. I'm sure it was extremely painful. I'm sure it was extremely, well, I don't know. I mean, I think it'd be embarrassing because, you know, our Victorian sense of the world around us today, but uh, 4,000 years ago, I have no idea, uh, you know, what their thought process was. I mean, they may have walked around naked all the time for all I know. I don't know. Um, but to circumcise, because how are you going to know, you know, if somebody's circumcised or not? I mean, okay, I'm circumcised. I mean, prove it. I mean, it's just, there's, there is, uh, there's just some things that you just don't want to know <laughs> anyway. So, um, that would have been, if you want to be a foreigner in the land, you have to become circumcised. Uh, and then you're part of it. In, for us, we don't really have anybody that's a foreigner in the Christian church. I guess we ca- kind of probably do. Uh, you know, we have people that celebrate worship with us, but if, if they want to have that, you know, if they want to become, uh, if they want to celebrate Holy Communion with us, uh, we ask that they be um that they be baptized, that they become into the kingdom of God. That seems to be the logical thing that scripture says. Uh, let's go on for verse 49. Uh, the same law applies both to the native born and to the foreigner residing among you. All the Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their division. So apparently they had divisions. They had lots of people that came out of Egypt. One division, the next division. And uh, so these are the these are the Passover restrictions. These are the ones that um, that happened. And uh, 
Anything else I want to say about that? Yeah, you know, uh, th- this this Passover ends up being celebrated by Jesus, and it, it there, there's a lot of great overlapping theology about how God rescued the children of Israel, you know, in the Passover, and Jesus rescued the you know the whole entire earth in the celebration of the Passover. The Passover is a big deal. Um, and you can see in the New Testament that they celebrated it often. There's always a question in the New Testament is about how often they would celebrate this Passover meal. Uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, they celebrate Passover. They celebrate communion every Sunday. And the reason why they do it every Sunday is because the only reason why they worship is to come around together around this this celebration of Holy Communion. They call it the Mass. And so the high point of the Roman Catholic worship service is the Mass, where you everything's leading up to the consecration of the elements, then the elements are distributed, uh, and all the benefits that are included in the elements are distributed to all the people in the congregation, and then it's the end of the worship service. The high point is the Mass. Now, Martin Luther said there's nothing scriptural that said, well, you don't actually even need to have a Mass. There's nothing in Holy Scripture that says you have to have a Mass. There's nothing in Holy Scripture that says there's a priest. Uh, These are all leftovers that the early church started because the vast majority of people that were converted to Christianity in the early church were Jewish people. Uh, And so those people kind of took the Mass and the Holy Communion and the priesthood kind of into the church. There's nothing in Scripture. Priest is not mentioned in the New Testament at all, and and worship services are not really even talked about in the New Testament either. They were just kind of brought along. Um, Luther didn't have a problem with either of those things, um, but what he did say is that Mass is not the high point of the service. For Luther, he felt the high point of the service should be word and sacrament. So in other words, there's two high points in the service. There's the proclamation of God's word, the preaching of God's word, the discussion about God's word, and all the thing that Luther put about God's word, and then the mass. So the fundamental difference, actually, between uh, Protestant and Roman Catholic, at least at the time of Luther, was that in the Roman Catholic, there was one high point in the worship service, and in Protestant, there's two high points in the worship service. And um, even today, uh, you'll have uh, many, many churches and congregations that have those two high points. There's a preaching high point, and then there's a, a celebration of Holy Communion high point. But believe it or not, there are a lot of churches that have moved away from Holy Communion. Um, they don't do it at all, uh, which is not too surprising because um, there are a lot of churches that are always trying to find new and different ways to do things. There, there are churches that... Um, that don't celebrate Holy Communion at all, uh, which is fascinating. Uh, and then there's there's churches like when the early uh, Lutherans came over to the United States or even a lot of these mainline Protestants, remember it was only 200 years or 150, 200 years after the Reformation, they looked into Scripture and they said, listen, there's no proclamation in Scripture that says we have to celebrate Mass or celebrate Holy Communion every Sunday. Uh, and the one thing that they carried with them is that the only person that could consecrate the elements was one who has been properly called and ordained, properly called, rite vocatus in the Latin. 
And so those people are harder to come by and they're not everywhere and they're not present. And so what the early church would do is they expanded the new territories is that they would only celebrate Holy Communion periodically. They might do it once a month. They might do it once a quarter. They might even only do it once a year. And then that they could have somebody come in who is rite vocatis, rightly called, that could consecrate the elements and do that. Um, because when you're, you know, you're in a new country and you're trying to do new things, you know, everything's up in the air. Uh, and so the new people that came into the United States, they, they weren't sure. But if you have the ability, I don't see any reason why you can't celebrate uh, Holy Communion every Sunday. It certainly uh, makes sense to me. Um, <clears throat> as a matter of fact, Jesus said, take and eat. Do this as often as you, you know, do as often as you can in remembrance of me. Uh, and so we do that. Um, and let's see. Uh, so that's kind of where it ties into this whole Exodus story, some of these, some, some of these things. Uh, so today, modern day, uh, if you're going to celebrate Holy Communion, you should be baptized. That's according to Didache. <clears throat> that's kind of our reading of this Old Testament, New Testament uh, stuff. And, uh, and it ties right into this Exodus, where in the Exodus, God rescued Israel, but in Holy Communion, God is rescuing us. And, uh, and that's a great tie-in. So I think we'll leave it there. Uh, would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, thank you for a great uh, a time together, and thank you to gather together to, to, to read and digest your holy word. Um, thank you for, for this day, and until we meet again tomorrow, keep us in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.